Okay, tonight's topic is Judah Maccabee and his career after the miracle of Hanukkah. So the latter years and his uh, sad demise. Well, in October of the year 164 before the Common Era, we have the rededication of the Temple. Why do I say October? After all, it was Kislev. Kislev is December. The answer is, it was a defective calendar. We spoke about that last time. The, the, the calendar was two months off because of the lack of intercalation of the leap year. So, what happens after October of 164, for the next roughly four or five years, um, between the Seleucid Kingdom and the Hasmonean uh, guerrilla faction? Because after all, the rededication of the temple was simply one spot, one place on the map. It's Mount, Mount Moriah, city of Jerusalem, a place to God, of, of, for, for God's worship, and that was cleaned up. But the, the country is still under foreign rule, and the Hasmoneans don't hold official office in the Jewish community. They simply, by virtue of Matityahu's active zeal and their uh, fighting spirit, have been able to achieve good things, but they don't hold office. They're not, they're not recognized as, uh, as leaders of the community. So what's going to happen next? Will the Seleucids accept this uh, rededication of the temple and the restoration of Torah observance? Will they allow the Hasmoneans to uh, continue to operate in the countryside? What happens next? So, um, according to the book of Maccabees, Maccabees 1, Antiochus dies, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, dies a broken man in the east after hearing about the victories of the, uh, the Maccabees and the rededication of the temple. And he has sort of like a deathbed confession where he says, uh, woe, un- woe unto me, I'm being punished for my transgressions against the, the, the Hebrews, uh, the Jews. Now that's, of course, uh, an embellishment because according to the better historians who have calculated the chronology, yes, Antiochus died after the Hanukkah story happened. But he died in the east, far enough away from Jerusalem that he couldn't have known about what happened. News wouldn't have traveled fast enough for him to find out. So he dies of natural causes while fighting a campaign against the, uh, against the Persian provinces. But he doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem, despite what it might say in Maccabees. Huh? Not very old at all. Uh, probably 213... He's about, he's in his late 40s, late 40s. Okay, so when he dies, he leaves behind Antiochus V under the leadership, under the, uh, the regency of Philip. Now, up until that time, Antiochus the, the, the V had been under the protection of Lysias, who was the general in the West, in the land of Israel, who fights battles against uh, Judah and loses. Um, soon we'll see a struggle over who takes control of the child king. Whenever you have a child king, who really calls the shots? Regent. The regent. So is it going to be Lysias or is it going to be Philip? And this, this machloket is going to play a, a major role in the fate of Jews and the temple. All right. After uh, the rededication of the temple... The surrounding Gentiles in the regions uh, of Eretz Yisrael want to kill the Jews. Things get very dangerous all of a sudden. 
and the Hasmoneans have to divide their forces to go on rescue missions, saving people from, who are in harm's way. So Simon is sent to rescue the Jews of Galilee. Judas and Jonathan go to rescue the Jews of Gilad, meaning the regions beyond the river, on the east side of the Jordan River. Joseph, the son of Zechariah, and Azariah, two people who we otherwise don't really know who they are, were left behind in the Judea province proper to supervise the, the Jewish community there. So while the important Hasmoneans are off fighting the glorious battles to rescue Jewish lives, two Chamyankles are left behind to, to hold down the fort. And, and they're told, you stay here. You don't go to fight. You protect the core region of Judea. Of course, what happens when you tell two Chamyankles to stay put? What do they do? Yeah. They go fight, as we'll, as we'll see, and they, and they don't win. Um, so the Jews beyond Judea were repatriated to the core of the Judean province, where they could be protected by the Hasmoneans. And during the, this campaign, Simon and Judah and Jonathan slaughter thousands and thousands of heathens who were in the border provinces of Israel, and they take much uh, spoil of war. Uh, Azariah and, and Joseph think that they should also uh, engage in battle and win glory for, personal glory for themselves, but they're defeated. Because according to the first book of Maccabees, only the Hasmonean family was destined by God for glory of victory and salvation. Now that's the, the bias of the first book of Maccabees in favor of the Hasmonean family, as opposed to the second book of Maccabees, which is sort of against the Hasmonean family except Judas, and would say things that other people could also be heroes. Okay, now we have to ask ourselves a question. Why did the Gentiles turn against the Jews in the aftermath of the rededication of the temple? And what, what are Jews doing in dangerous areas surrounded by Gentiles to begin with? So the first question is, why are the, 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 the Goyim all stirred up at this point? What are they afraid of? What do they think is going to happen? The Jews will take over the whole area. Correct. So, well, revenge is actually not so much of a factor because there hasn't been anti-Jewish persecution in recent centuries before this point, other than Antiochus' decrees that you can't observe the Torah. So... That's pretty bad. Uh, but that's Antiochus. That's not the Idumeans or the, or, or, or the Philistines or the Nabataeans or, or the people in the, on the eastern provinces. They're just living, you know, the normal lives. But the, the Gentiles are afraid that the fulfillment of biblical prophecy is upon us. And that even if they don't believe in biblical prophecy, the Jews do. And if the Jews do... What are they about to... Uh, uh, they're they're going to act on it, and they're going to expand their borders at the expense of anyone else who lives nearby, and including not just dispossessing people, but killing them. So the Gentiles are afraid that the Jews are going to go on a rampage and take over the whole country, the expanded borders of Eretz Israel. Bear in mind that the Judean province itself was pretty small. It was 20 miles by 25 miles. It's the shaded area on the map uh, with the core in Jerusalem and going south to Hebron and north, just north of Ramallah maybe uh, and to the east to, to, the, to, the, to the Dead Sea and to the west to the coastal plain but not, not including the coastal plain. It's this very small area. What else is there in Eretz Israel? Well, there's the Negev section, there's the Gilad section, there's the Sumerian section, there's the Galilee. There's a lot more to Eretz Israel. So these uh, heathen groups are very afraid 
and they, they try to lash out at the Jews, and the Jews have to be rescued by the Hasmonean family. But there's another factor, and that is that Judas is seen as the next coming of Joshua. And what happened in the book of Joshua? In the story of the spies of Jericho, what does Rachav say to the two spies about the attitude, the, the, the psychological makeup of the people of Jericho? That, right, their hearts are melting. Their hearts are melting. So people are really afraid if Judas is the next coming of Joshua, then uh, violence is, uh, is going to follow. And it does. Okay, so many people are killed and the Jews are brought back. What are the Jews doing in these other places to begin with? So as I mentioned in the last past few weeks, Jews moved back to Eretz Yisrael in considerable numbers during the Second Commonwealth period, and there were others who never left, who were not uh, dispossessed by the Babylonians and, and exiled to, to points east. So there are Jews all over Eretz Yisrael in, in somewhat considerable numbers, but they're the minority everywhere other than the core of Judea. And when a Jew is a minority in, in, in a province, uh, in, in the peripheral provinces of Eretz Israel, what do, they, what, what do they rely on for protection? Well, in the good, in the good days of the, the benevolent Persian monarchs and the benevolent uh, uh, um, Macedonian monarchs, so there wasn't much to worry about. The, the Goyim weren't killing anyone. But now, you better hope that the Hasmonean brothers come to your rescue. Otherwise, it's curtains for you. Okay, so the, the, the Jews themselves petition the Maccabean family for help, and the help is on the way. Having uh, secured that help, they move back to uh, the region around Jerusalem. So the other parts of Eretz Israel are now Judenrein, or considerably uh, devoid of Jews. That's actually, in the long run, not a good thing. Because if the Hasmonean kingdom in the subsequent generations wants to expand uh, its horizons and actually conquer all of Eretz Israel, it needs population. You have to have Jewish population to justify your presence in these other places. Which exactly. So, so like, so like in 1948, where the very small pockets. Uh, you know, collapsed and were killed, whether it was, you know, in, in, in the Kfar Darom, or in Gush Etzion, or Atarot, north of Jerusalem, there were sections of, of, of the Yishuv that were lost, because there just weren't enough Jews there. So, the same thing happens in Hasmonean times, except that within a few generations, there's going to be a, a war of conquest to, to recover all those lands and more. Okay. Yeah. Did they get any input from those people who each had a big Jewish population in some of these other areas? Nobody was willing to move. So we don't we don't find that uh, in the Maccabean revolt that there were volunteers from the outside. Uh, we do find that in other Jewish wars, but we don't find that this time. But if they were in Egypt, they weren't Seleucids. No, they were Ptolemaic, and crossing and crossing the border is no simple is no simple feat. Okay. Plus, there are Jews who have Ptolemaic sympathies who might be moving to Egypt, as we'll see in a moment, including building a holy temple there, the Beit HaMikdash of Leontopolis. Okay, so the, the Jews, um, having defeated their, their neighbors, realize that they need to have fortifications, and the Temple Mount and Beit Tzur, Beit Tzur, which is uh, about 20 miles south southwest of Jerusalem are fortified as stronghold positions that the enemy if they come back 
should not be able to just walk on in. Because we have to assume that the Seleucid kingdom is not going to take kindly to a Maccabean victory in Jerusalem and a cleansing of the temple. They're going to want to reimpose the old ways. And in early 163, um, Lysias decides to, um, to do something about this and to, uh, to do battle against the Jews. Um, the next move belongs to Judas. There is a, a spot on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, maybe it's not on the Temple Mount, it's not unclear exact, its exact location, called the Acre. I mentioned it last week. The Acre was a place where the sinners lived. The sinners. Who are the sinners? Are they bad Jews? Are they heterodox Jews? Are they Hellenistic Jews? Are they Gentiles? Are they intermarried? Whatever it is, they're bad guys. In the books of the eyes of the book of Maccabees. We, we have trouble identifying precisely who they were. But the Acre is a thorn in the side of Judas. Because he wants to have a totally cleansed Jerusalem, loyal to the Torah, and loyal to his leadership. So as long as Acre is there, he has a trouble spot. So he besieges the Acre. Antiochus and Lysias march on Judea by way of the south. They come from the long way, from the south, via Idumea, and they go to Beit Sur, and they besiege Beit Sur. Judas has no choice but to lift the siege that he was imposing on the Acre and to go south and fight the enemy um, somewhere along the road between Hebron and Jerusalem. That spot is at Beit Zechariah. And at Beit Zechariah, the Jews are defeated. Judas loses a battle. But contrary to what some people uh, are taught in Cheder, that Judas was, uh, was, was always victorious until the day he died, it's not true. He lost the battle of Beit Zechariah. He wasn't killed because they fell back onto Jerusalem, onto the Mount Zion. Only one brother died in that battle, Elazar. What did Elazar do? So according to the legend as recorded in Maccabees, he sees an elephant with the, with the royal diadem on top and he figures the king is on that elephant and he goes underneath and stabs the elephant from the, from the underside and the elephant dies and collapses on him and kills him. So he took one for the team thinking that this would uh, be a, a great uh, moral victory for, for, for the Jews if they would uh, destroy and kill the, the, the heathen king. Uh, yes, yes. The town of El Azar is r- roughly where Beit Zechariah was of Maccabean times. So, Are you sure it was an elephant? Yes. Was an elephant. Okay. The Jewish diehards were hoping for a miracle. And they fall back onto the temple. Um, the temple is besieged, and the, Maccab- the, the Maccabean family, they disappear. Now, the first book of Maccabees doesn't say this, because they don't say anything in that book that is derogatory or de- 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 uh, besmirches the memory of the heroic Maccabean brothers. But most likely they fled to the mountains. And the, the next move was a truce. A deal was struck. The Seleucid besiegers allowed the Jews at Beit Sur, which was a fortified position, who were struggling terribly because it was a sabbatical year. And what happens in a sabbatical year to the food supply? 
very, very minimal. They're starving. So they are allowed to be evacuated to Jerusalem. And Beit Sur is now occupied by Seleucid troops. And as for the Jews who are besieged on the Temple Mount, they were also hard-pressed. And the author of the book of Daniel, chapter 12, assumed that they would be crushed. Okay, But a deal is eventually reached. Menelaus, who was the high priest at this point for almost 10 years, um, is deposed. And in fact, he's sent off to Syria where he's executed by the, by the Syrian government. So Menelaus, who was the, uh, the dupe, or the, uh, the, the Hellenistic priest who caused a lot of trouble for, for Am Yisrael, he had his comeuppance. He was executed by his own side, by the Syrian Greeks. Antiochus appoints in place of uh, Menelaus a man by the name of Alchemus, or El Yakim, or Yakimish Tzrorot in rabbinic literature. He was a pious Jew. If you read the traditional historiography, it'll say that Alchemus was a Hellenizer. That's not true. He was actually religious. And this was an intentional pick by Antiochus because right now we're going to cut a deal. The deal is you can observe your religion. The Torah is no longer verboten. And you can have a religious high priest on one condition. Political loyalty. No more fighting, no more rebellion. So who's going to be against such a deal? The Chashmonaim. But the Chashmonaim don't hold official office in the Jewish community. So they're not in a position to reject the deal. It's not their call. The Jerusia, the official governing body of, of Judaism, decides these things. And they said yes. And so... Is this the regency of Antiochus V? So this is when Lysias is the regent for Antiochus V, who's about to get killed. They're both about to get killed soon by an upstart uh, usurper. So Alchemist is p- appointed. The deal is you can keep the Torah... Political uh, quietism again, no longer any rebellion. The Hasmoneans reject the deal. They go off to the wilderness to cause trouble to, to, to the countryside and, and, and just uh, fight guerrilla warfare. But everything is in place. Except one little point. Before Antiochus leaves, he demolishes the wall surrounding the Temple Mount. That no longer should the Temple Mount, which is a religious structure, uh, be a fortified position as a, a last line of defense for, for nationalistic purposes. Of course, at a later time, the walls will be rebuilt. And we know from the Tishabov stories and the Shivasa Batamus that the wall, once again, in subsequent centuries, will be the last line of defense in a nationalistic struggle. It's not just going to be a wall protecting a religious holy place. But Antiochus, realizing this, the, the dual significance of that wall, tears it down. Okay. Um, I mentioned the temple in, in, in Egypt. When Menelaus is replaced by a new high priest, Alchemist, um, the Oneid family, which legitimately held the priesthood for a long time, they are the descendants of Tzadok, the Tzadokite line, they were very offended. After all, who, who should be the high priest? A, a direct descendant of Tzadok HaKohen, or a direct descendant of the last Tzadokite high priest, who was Chonio III. Now, Chonio III, if you remember, was, uh, was kicked out of office when Jason, the usurper, Jason the usurper, bribed Antiochus IV to hold the, the job. Well, Chonio IV, the son of Chonio III, thinks that it's his right to hold the office now. But what happens? Alchemist is taken as the, as the, as the high priest. 
So what does Chonio the fourth do? He moves out of Israel and he moves to Egypt, and with the support of the Ptolemaic dynasty, establishes a Beit Hamikdash in Egypt, which existed for uh, two hundred and thirty-five years, from one sixty-two before the Common Era to seventy-three of the Common Era. It wasn't destroyed until Titus uh, burned it down, thinking that it, like the Beit Hamikdash of Jerusalem, could be a rallying point for Jewish nationalism. Truth is, it never was. It was always a minor, uh, uh, a, a minor temple that satisfied the, re- the local religious needs of Egyptian Jewry, and even that it didn't f- fully accomplish, because uh, Philo talks about how Egyptian Jews also went to the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim and sent their half-shekels to Jerusalem. So it was just a local shrine to keep people happy. It was a shul where they, where they killed animals and burned them. I mean, that's basically it. That was the style of the time. Um, uh, we don't know, actually. Uh, the structure at Elephantine, which was in southern Egypt, was destroyed two, th- 300 years earlier, did look similar to the Beit HaMikdash. That was the Temple? No, the Elephantine Temple looked like the Beit HaMikdash. The, the, the Leontopolis Temple, uh, which was in the Nile Delta, we don't really know exactly what it looked like. What about Harazetim? What about was that, it? Was that modeled after the Jerusalem Temple? Harazetim? Mount of Olives? Uh, I meant, uh, I mean, no, oh, the, uh, the Sadducees. Uh, you mean the Samaritan Temple? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that was more modeled. I think that was more modeled after the Mishkan, after the the, the Wilderness Tabernacle. So, okay, uh, in one in early autumn of one sixty two, major change occurs. Demetrius, who was the son of Seleucus the Fourth. escapes Rome where he was serving as a hostage. He lands at Tripoli and then he claims to be king. The troops at Antioch rally to Demetrius and they kill Lysias and Antiochus V. Antiochus V is a sorry uh, case. His father at least made it to the late 40s. Antiochus V didn't make it out of his teenage years. He was uh, was assassinated together with his regent. Um, Well, who is this this, uh, Demetrius fellow? If you remember, Seleucus IV was the son of Antiochus III. Antiochus III captured Eretz Israel in 198. He dies in about 187. His son takes over and is king till 175 when he dies. That's Seleucus IV. Usually, when a king dies, who takes over? His son. Well, Antiochus IV was not the son of Seleucus IV. He was the brother and he was an illegitimate monarch in, in the eyes of many. So, upon his death and the death of his son, his, uh, Antiochus IV's uh, brother, uh, actually cousin, comes back into the picture and says, I'm the rightful king. And kills everybody off and says, I'm here I am. And he wins. That's Demetrius I. Um, so, what does Demetrius do? He confirms that Alchemist should be the high priest, and he sends an army under the, ru- under the uh, supervision of Bachidas. Uh, that's the Hebrew pronunciation. The English is spelled B-A-C-C-H-I-D-E-S. I'm not even sure how the Greek pronunciation goes. But in the Hebrew, Bachides, in the Hebrew it's Bachidas. Um, he is sent to impose Al- Alchemist's rule over the Jewish people as the high priest. Well, are the people going to accept this? So now we have a, a very serious uh, problem, and it's something of a theological problem. And that is, 
Who is allowed to appoint the high priest? Who determines in Judaism the Kohen Gadol? Well, in the good old days, the, the collective body of the priesthood would, would choose a Kohen Hagadol Me'echav, who was greater than all of his brethren. In what respect would the Kohen Gadol be greater than his brethren? Benoi, with physical appearance, Be'osher, with wealth, Be'chachma, with wisdom. There are various halachic categories that make you deserving of being the high priest, so long as you have the requisite lineage. You're from uh, Aharon Kohen, from Sadoka Kohen, and the, the right family. But when there's a foreign overlord, the, the priesthood themselves, they're not going to decide who, who wins the prize. The foreign king will decide that. And this was accepted in Judaism. As an operative principle, the legitimate foreign king over Eretz Yisrael will determine who is the high priest. But now you could ask yourself, who's the legitimate foreign king? And there are several questions in play. Number one, when you have com- competing uh, claimants to the Seleucid throne, who's the legitimate one? Was it Antiochus V? Was it Demetrius? At a later time, will it be Alexander Ballas? There are all sorts of guys who are, who are saying, I'm the king whether with justification or not. That's one question. Who do you side with politically and with the religious implication? The other is, maybe none of that matters. Maybe the era of foreign rule over Eretz Israel is, is over. That, uh, that Judah Maccabee's victory and cleansing of the temple is a sign that the Messianic era is upon us and no more Goyim in charge. Jews should be in charge. And if Jews are in charge, then if a Gentile heathen king appoints a, a high priest, he's nished a high priest. He's nothing. That's the question. So those who were inclined towards the uh, messianic fervor would say, Alchemist was appointed by uh, Antiochus V or Demetrius I. They're they're in no position to appoint a high priest. They're nothing to us. We only care about Jewish leadership. In which case, one of the the Onayids, the the Sadakites, should be the high priest. Or you could take the, the point of view that this messianic fervor is, is too fast and too soon. That the, uh, the Jews don't control their own destiny yet. We're still under somebody else's rule. And whoever they appoint, they appoint and that's it. Learn to live with it. So we have this in our own time as well. Messianic fervor versus uh, realpolitik. So the Hasmoneans would certainly say that foreign rule has come and gone and this is a usurper high priest who should not be respected. But are the Hasmoneans in any position to uh, oust alchemists from power? After all, they had to flee to the mountains, run away. And they weren't part of the deal that allowed Torah to be brought back. Well, Judah Maccabee isn't going to go down without a fight. And so, he uh, leads a violent opposition in the countryside against alchemists' reign. That alchemists has to appeal to Demetrius for additional help. So here, Bachidus was sent one time to impose Alchemist's rule. It fails because Judas is causing trouble in the background. So what do you do? What did Menelaus do? Remember two weeks ago, Menelaus was having trouble with the, with the, uh, the pietists who didn't like his rule because he wasn't from enough and they would cause him trouble, Tsarus. So what does he do? He calls Frantiochus to come in for help. Whenever you have an unpopular high priest who's unpopular either for a lack of piety or for a lack of nationalism, he's going to have to call in for, for, for mercenary foreign troops to support his authority. So who is that person? Nicanor. 
What do we know about Nicanor? Okay, so so Nicanor Gates were named after someone completely different. That was after a Jew who, who by legend, donated the, the, the gates to the temple, and one was lost under the ship, it was over at sea, but miraculously it stuck, it was stuck under the boat, and it landed at, at the port of, of, of Yafo, and uh, th- those are the gates of the eastern, wall, uh, the eastern side of the temple. Okay, but we're not talking about that Nicanor. We're talking about the, the Syrian general Nicanor. So, Yom Nicanor. What is Yom Nicanor? When is it? It was replaced by Tanis Esther. It's the 13th of Adar. Okay, so what happens? There is an initial skirmish between Nicanor and Judah's forces at the, at the site of Dessa. Dessa, which is uh, to the northwest of Jerusalem. And it was inconclusive. Um, and after this initial skirmish, uh, in fact... Judas and Nicanor are on reasonable terms. Nicanor does not want to fight a battle to the death. So he lets Judas go, and according to Second uh, Maccabees and according to uh, Josephus, there was a lull of some length of time during which Judas married and enjoyed life. Those are, it's an exact quote. He married and enjoyed life. What does that mean? Okay, so uh, are we to assume that until this point he was a bocher, he, was, he, was a, he needed a shidduch? Maybe. So he married and he enjoyed life. So there was a calm before the storm. But Alchemist again uh, complains to Demetrius that the Hasmoneans are frustrating him, the, that, the, that the pietist nationalists are not letting him conduct his affairs. Okay, And so Nicanor is once again sent into battle against Judas. And this battle happens at Adasa or Chadasha, uh, which is roughly uh, near where Ramallah is. And he was sent by Demetrius. He was sent by Demetrius. Yes. And this battle takes place on the thirteenth of Adar, March eighth, one sixty one. At this battle, Judas wins a big victory, courtesy of knowing the terrain a little bit better than the foreign troops and uh, good reconnaissance, and brave soldiery. Nicanor dies, his head is chopped off, his right arm is chopped off, and they are paraded around Jerusalem as spoils of war to show the, the, the glory of, of, of the Maccabean victory. Okay, so this Yom Nicanor, 13th of Adar, is established as a day of festivity, and for a time was one of the most important of the non-biblical holidays. One of the most important non-biblical holidays. It's in the scroll of fast, the Megillat Ta'anit. Okay, we still have that scroll, back of Tractate Tanis. And it was observed for a fairly long time. Even after the destruction of the Second Temple, there were still those who remembered Yom Nikanor. It didn't die with the destruction, with, with Titus's destruction. Because it was... No fasting, no eulogies, food, no tachanun. So did that supersede Tanis Esther? Okay. A couple of centuries earlier. So Tanis Esther, if you were here from a couple of years ago, we did the holidays. Tanis Esther was invented in the in the Gaonic period. Tanis Esther does not exist from the days of of the Purim story until a thousand years later or more. 
There is not a single reference to Tanis Esther in the Talmud Bavli. There is one cryptic line that some of the Rishonim thought was a reference to Tanis Esther when it says in Davbez in Megillah that Yud Gimel Adar's Yom Kihilala Kol. It was a day of gathering for everyone, for all communities, whether you lived in a walled city, an unwalled city, or in the boondocks. So, Yeshomrim, there are those who would say that that was a Yom Kihila because on fast days everybody gets together. Like we had this morning and this afternoon, a big Minchachris, a big Mincha, people come to Shul on a fast day, that's what it was. But no. That's not what the, what the Gemara meant. The Gemara meant Yom Kilal Akol, and that everybody fought against the, the, the anti-Semites on the 13th of Adar in the, in the book of Esther, and that the rejoicing was the 14th or the 15th. So there is no Tanis Esther in Talmudic times, let alone in Second Temple times. This was Yom Nikanor. Okay, what, when, when did Yom Nikanor fall out of favor? At some point along the way, in the second or, uh, century common era or beyond. But it, it, is, it is recalled in the Talmud as being significant, more so than some of the other scroll of fast uh, holidays that have long since been totally forgotten. Okay. Well. So what happened to the high priest? Uh, so the high priest, Alchemus, was not deposed. Although Nicanor was coming to save his skin, still Alchemist is functioning as the Kohen. In the rabbinic literature, he is seen as a very bad man. And let's read a passage of rabbinic literature right now. This is a Midrash, Rabbah, Beratius, uh, chapter 65. Yakim Ish Tzrorot. So Yakim or Alchemist, the man of Tzrorot, what is it, Tzror? A pebble, a rock, okay. So, or a package. So, um, Yakim, the, the man of Tzrorot, Hayat shel Rabbi Yossi ben Yoezer ish Tzreda. He was the, the nephew of Yossi ben Yoezer of Tzreda. Now, Tzrorot and Tzreda, it's the same word, basically, they came from the same town. Where is Tzreda? To the north and to the west a little bit, not in the core of the Judean province. So they're related to each other. Who is Yossi ben Yoezer? Yossi ben Yuezir is one of the, the, uh, the, the two leaders of the first zug, the first pair of Pharisaic leaders, the Prushim. So he's a big proto-rabbi, very, very uh, wise man, uh, one who's part of the chain of tradition of the halakha, of the oral law. And he's a Kohen himself. He was known as the Hasid Shebekuna, the pious one of the, of the priests. So he's related to the, this uh, Kohen Gadol, it's his nephew, and Hayarachev Susia, the Kohen Gadol, was riding a horse. Azal Kamesh Rita Azal What happened was that Yossi ben Yoezir was carrying the cross on which he was going to be crucified because some of the pietists were about to be executed. The Book of Maccabees says that 60 pietists were executed. So Yossi ben Yuezi says, look at the horse that I'm riding on, and look at the horse that you're riding on. That, uh, I'm riding on an, a, a regal horse, and, and, and you're riding on a, on a, a, a beam on which you're going to die. So Yossi ben Yuezi says to his nephew, if that's how God rewards those who, who anger him, meaning you have, you know, the, the royal splendor of the, of the high priestly office, and you, you're the one who angers God, all the more so, Kava Chomer will be the great reward for those who do God's will, meaning me, I'm a real from guy. So in the Olam Haba, I'm going to have this glorious reward. Okay, so 
Yaakim responds to him. Well, he's not a Hashmonai, this Yaakim. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. But 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 don't worry. They they they've lost, but they haven't lost completely. They're going to come back. They're going to make a big resurgence. Don't worry. They're not they're not down and out yet. Okay. So Amarlo im kach laose ritzono. So 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 Yakim says to 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 Yossi ben Yehazir. Did anyone ever do God's will more than you did? No. And yet you're down and out. So what are you telling me that there's going to be a great reward for those who are pious? I'm looking at you right now. You're on the verge of getting executed. And you were the firmest guy who ever lived. So it goes to show you that piety didn't mean anything. So, so Yossi ben Yerza responds, If this is the horrible punishment that happens to those who do God's will, all the more so is there going to be the fires of hell for those who anger God. So that's a real good shtach, good zetz to, to, uh, to, to Yakim. And what happened? The words entered Yakim like poison, like venom. Uh, he froze. And he didn't know what you know what to do, so I'm going to read you the rest of the midrash, and I'll tell you what what, what actually happened. Uh, but no, but 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 there's a parallel. It's very very interesting. So halach the kimbo abamisa's bezdin, Yakim realizing the error of his ways, fulfilled all four death penalties on himself. How do you do that? So skila sreifa herig vechenek. The four types of death penalty are stoning, burning, uh, beheading, and strangulation. Maasa, what did he do? Practically, how do you carry this out? Hevi kora v'naatsa ba'aretz. He took a beam of wood and stuck it into the ground. V'asas viva geder, and he made a wall of, of, of stones around the the, uh, the beam. V'kasher ba'nima, and he tied a, th- a thread to the beam. And he made a fire in front of uh, the, the beam, and he put a sword in the middle. He hung himself on the beam, and the, the, the string broke, and so he, he, um, he, he was uh, strangled, but he also fell on the sword so that he was uh, beheaded, and also the, the stone wall collapsed on top of him, and the fire consumed him. So all four death penalties were fulfilled at one time. That's, that's a little Rube Goldberg. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right. Now, so what happened? This nam named Yossi ben Yoezer. Yossi ben Yoezer was drifting in and out of consciousness. And he saw a vision of the coffin of Yakim floating in the heavens. And he said, in one brief moment, this guy beat me to heaven. He, he's going to Gan Eden before I am. Now, th- this story is similar to several other stories in rabbinic literature about someone who goes to heaven courtesy of a last-minute act of, of, of theological heroism, despite... A, a, okay, so the, the, the executioner of Hananya ben Shrajon falls into that category. Um, there are other examples where somebody was a scoundrel, but in the end he did something brave you know, for Hashem, so he goes to heaven. Um, Yeah. Would do something the last moment in reference to the Nazis. Right. He became the hero that yeah. died. Right, right, yeah. I've heard so, several okay. of those kind of stories. So, 
this, so this story uh, of the Yakim committing suicide didn't happen like that. What really happened was he had a stroke. He had a stroke in 159 while doing the temple service. And the, the nationalists... I because the, the records indicate that he, he, he froze, he, he literally froze while doing the avoda. So we assume he had a heart attack, stroke. Okay, so the doctors, the, the Jewish doctors, they reported it. Okay, so why does this story exist? Let me explain. Well, let's do the stroke first. All right, so the stroke was seen by the nationalists as a sign from heaven that they were right and that the collaborators with the Seleucid re- regime were wrong, despite the fact that Alchemist may have been an observant Jew, and was not sacrificing to the Avodah Zarah, he was not Jason, he was not Menelaus, he was appointed because he was a religious Jew, but also because he was a collaborator. And so, the lesson being, it's not enough just to be a from Yid, you also have to be a Zionist. You, you can't uh, cooperate with the Syrian government. That's what the way the Hasmoneans and their supporters would have interpreted Alchemist's demise. So why does rabbinic literature have it that he committed suicide and was such an awful figure? Because the, the, the literature of Chazal remembered, whether from reading in the book of Maccabees or from just the oral tradition, that at the beginning of Alchemist's reign, 60 proto-Pharisees or proto-rabbis were executed. Now, when you kill the rabbis, so in rabbinic literature, you're going to be remembered as, you know, Zechet Tzadik Levracha, Yemach Shemov Zichro. You're either good or you're bad. So Alchemist is bad. Did he do the, 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 the killings? Was he responsible for the death of those people? Not directly, no. What happened was that Bachidas, who was trying to impose Alchemist's rule at the behest of, of Demetrius, realizes that there are opponents here. And some of the opponents are Hellenistic Jews who don't want to see a pious Jew appointed high priest, and others are pious Jews who have national, nationalist sympathies and don't want to see any co- co- cooperation with the government. So the, the, the Gentile uh, you know, army official who comes in on his high horse and is installing a new high priest is going to indiscriminately, or somewhat indiscriminately, kill a lot of people. And if some of them are going to be uh, Prushim or proto-rabbis, so then the, the ecclesiastical official who enters together with this general is going to be forever remembered as a villain, whether he really was a villain or not. Now, it probably is true that he was a, he was a relative of Yossi ben Yoezer. And was Yossi ben Yoezer killed? He was about to go to, for, for crucifixion. Did he die in this story? It doesn't say. It says, Nisnamnem. He may have been floating in and out of consciousness. He might have survived the, the crucifixion. Some people did survive crucifixion. Oh, sure. It's very uncommon. They get taken off. If they're taken off fast enough, they could live. All right? So he, uh, he, might, he, he may have lived. I mean, we have a long record of his halakhic statements. So I, I don't know that he necessarily died a martyr's death. Um, but his, his nephew was remembered always as having been an evildoer. All right. Well, what happens next? The Jews are looking for allies. After Nicanor was eliminated, there is quiet for the next year. And the temple is functioning. Granted, the high priest is not someone the Maccabees approve of, and the Maccabees are sort of on the run, but we're looking for allies. 
And who do we turn to? Rome. Rome is the key player in the world at this point in time. Rome is on the ascendancy. The Seleucid monarchy is on the decline. Now, the Seleucid monarchy will not fully disappear for another hundred years, but Rome is constantly advancing further and further east. And if you're a friend or an ally of Rome, that may be a source of protection against oppression by the Syrian Greeks. That's what the Jews are hoping for. And they're able to uh, sign a deal, a, a, a deal of friendship, an alliance of some kind, with Rome. It's supposed to be uh, a two-way street. Like, uh, you know, NATO. If someone attacks me, it's an attack on you too. Vice versa. But, you know, in reality, it was very one-sided. There was an expectation of the Jews that they would support Rome's interests against Syria and, uh, in, uh, in, in general, support Rome's interests with Rome doing little or nothing to help uh, the Judeans. Okay. Is this before, uh, before Pompeii? Well, oh, this is well before. This is a hundred years before. A hundred years before. So, the, uh, the the deal is struck, and Jew, uh, Jewish ambassadors actually remain in Rome for the foreseeable future until they are expelled for for proselytizing in 139 before the Common Era. Jew, Jews are actually kicked out of Rome despite the the alliance um, because they're trying to make uh, gayrim. That's a little side note. Okay, who makes this deal? Was it um, the Hashmonaim or was it the Jerusia? So the answer is that the Hashmonaim were in favor of it. They liked the Romans. Judah was the one who pursued this agenda. But he does not hold public office. So he cannot sign the deal. It has to be some legitimate representative of the so-called Sanhedrin or the Jerusia. And so that deal is struck and Demetrius I is warned, don't oppress the Jews. Rome warns him, don't oppress the Jews. Okay. Demetri- What's the relationship between Rome and Demetrius? Hostile, very hostile. But, so Rome threatened... Uh, Rome thre- threatens uh, some kind of military, whether it's a bluff or it's a real threat. Don't, don't oppress the Jews, we're on their side. Okay. Demetrius uh, sends an, ex- uh, an expedition under Bachidas again to suppress the Jewish rebels. And there's a massacre of Jewish troops in the Galilee. This is in early 160. Then, the, army, the, the Syrian army reaches Jerusalem. At this point in time, Bachidas crushingly defeats and demoralizes the Hasmonean force at El-Assa. El-Assa is just north of Jerusalem. Judas is brave till the very end. And he dies in battle at El-Assa. How many soldiers did he have, and how many was he fighting against? It seems like the enemy had about 10,000. How many did he have? No more than 3,000. But when the, when the soldiers saw that they were totally outnumbered, some of them said, let's turn around, go back to the city, and we'll live to fight another day. And what does Judas say? No. If it's our destiny to fall in battle, we'll fall in battle. But we're going to fight today. And how many men actually stick with him to the end? Only about 800. So he's totally outnumbered I mean, to a ridiculous ratio at the tail end, and he dies in battle. Okay. According to the book of Maccabees... What happened to the Jewish communities in the north? Why? Okay, so the Jewish communities in the north suffered um, under uh, Demetrius' reign 
I mean, there, were, there was a massacre in 160 because the Hasmonean forces were very far away. They were in the, in the middle of the country, in the south of the country, and were in no position to defend the interests of isolated pockets of Jews who were 100 miles north in Galilee. Um, and according to Book of Maccabees, there was real hatred at this point in time on the part of Demetrius for Jews in general. Because when, you have to understand that foreign kings typically don't want to destroy the population. They want the population to be productive and politically uh, docile. But to, to produce tax revenue and keep, the, keep the, the agriculture going, keep life moving along. Just pay me taxes and be subservient. But if a group is not subservient and fights again and again and again, so there's a, per, there's a personal factor involved where you, the, far, the, the heathen king, say to yourself, this people is just so rebellious, I can't deal with them anymore. I want to wipe them all out. Even if it's economically deleterious. So we've reached that point with Demetrius. He's had to send too many generals, too many times, to extirpate this Hasmonean influence. So he says, I'm going to just kill them all. There's widespread slaughter at this point. Okay. Now, when Judas dies at the front of the battle, what happens to his body? What normally happens at the end of a war? What happens to the dead bodies at the end of a war? Okay, so in modern warfare, there is the tendency to allow for the repatriation of corpses. Uh, you make an exchange. Sometimes there are live prisoners of war who are also included in these exchanges. In Greek warfare, that also held true, but that wouldn't hold true in the case of guerrilla fighters who were illegitimate. In other words, the Hashmonaim are not uh, soldiers in uniform, they're like Al-Qaeda, Hamas, you know, they, they don't wear a uniform. They're a terrorist organization. So, from Demetrius' point of view, why should he give up the bodies of Hasmonean fighters? They're illegitimate. Illegitimate. Yet he does. So the first book of Maccabees doesn't tell us how this happened. But if you read between the lines and look in the commentaries, the Mepharshim, it's clear that there was a deal, there was a deal brokered between Simon and Jonathan on the side of the Jews and Bachidas on the side of the Syrians that if you allow us to recover our dead brother's body go back to Modi'in to the ancestral home and conduct funerary rites and observe mourning we will refrain from harassing alchemists for the foreseeable future so basically the deal is we'll stop causing trouble if you let us bury our dead Book of Maccabees doesn't want to admit that. It never admits that there was any uh, favorable relationship between a Seleucid figure and a member of the Hasmonean family. So it denies that, that Nicanor and Judah were, you know, were getting along, chum, you know, were chummy friends for a while, and it denies that there was a deal over the recovery of the body. Okay. <coughs> After um, Judas's death, we don't hear much about. Uh, Hasmonean influence for the next few years. All we know is that Alchemus tries to modify the architecture of the temple court, which was re- regarded as an impious act by the Hashmonaim and by the other Hasidim. Before he can carry on with the project, he has a stroke. So that appears in Book of Maccabees, as opposed to the, the four death penalties that he performs on himself according to rabbinic literature. So when Alchemus is no longer able to fulfill his duties, who is the high priest? 
who takes who takes over? So his uncle was dead. His uncle uh, was dead. Let's assume, or was not a candidate for the office. The the Onayid family moved to Egypt and is conducting a rogue temple on foreign soil. Menelaus is dead. Jason is dead. Who's going to be the high priest? Matisyahu. is dead. Judas is dead. Which brothers of the Hasmonean family are still alive at this point? So, uh, so Yochanan, uh, Shimon, and Yonatan. But they are rebel guerrilla fighters hiding in some, some cave uh, in, in the desert. Who's going to be the Kohen Gadol? So the Seleucid government between 159 and 152 avoids provoking the anger of the various Jewish factions and it leaves the office of the high priest vacant for seven years. Seven years the office of the high priest is vacant. This is what's known in, in scholarly literature as the intersacerdotum. Like an interregnum when there's no king, so the intersacerdotum when there's no sacrament, there's no high priest. Okay. Ah, so what do you do with the Yom Kippur Avoda? The answer: somebody else would, you know, the the deputy would be would be uh, the shamus. The would go in and take care of business. I don't know. I don't know. Do we have a record of any? No record. Okay. So, but there's another theory, and the other theory is that the Moret Tzedek was the high priest. Who's the Moret Tzedek? How do you translate Moret Tzedek? The teacher of righteousness. Who is the teacher of righteousness? He's the founder of the Dead Sea, the Dead sea community of Qumran. An Essene? Essene, yeah. He was an Essene? Okay, so there are those who would claim that he was the high priest and functioned... Uh, sort of anonymously, we don't hear much about him. He was a Kohen. He was a Kohen, and that he had a problem in 152, where he's ousted by Jonathan, who Jonathan now makes a deal with the, with the subsequent Seleucid kings, and the teacher of righteousness goes off into the, de- into the wilderness because he feels the temple has been made uh, impure, compromised, tamay. But that for that time, he was in control. I don't accept this theory. I think it's incorrect. Uh, the reason why the theory exists is because some people had a hard time swallowing the idea that there was no Kohen Gadol for seven years. After all, who did the Avodah Yom Kippur? Who did this? Who did that? But the literature looks like the, the Seleucid authorities intentionally left the office unoccupied. Because if you look back 20 years worth of history, who caused all the trouble for the Seleucids? Whoever occupied the office of high priest. I mean, Jason... Jason bribed Antiochus IV. Was he a loyal foot soldier for the Seleucids? Yeah, basically. He was a a moderate Hellenizer who brought Greek culture into the city of Jerusalem. He was good. So maybe it wasn't such a bad idea. But when the bribe got a little higher, Menelaus took over. Menelaus was, was inept. Menelaus had to be rescued in 169 by Antiochus IV and 167 by uh, Apollonius. Okay? And he caused the pietists to become nationalists. The Hasidim who despised Menelaus turned towards the Maccabean uprising because of how bad Menelaus was. And so, you know, in, in, in hindsight, it wasn't worth, it, it wasn't worth it to, to, to take the money to get an inept, uh, inept official. Then Alchemus, 
Was he good? Was he weak? Well, you had to send Bachidus one time to save him. Then you had to send Nicanor to save him. Then Bachidus again to save him. Then the guy had a stroke because he didn't know what he was doing. So, like, time and again, a Kohen Gadol who is despised by elements of the Jewish community causes political division in the Jewish world that leads to rebelliousness and causes headaches for the, the Syrian regime. So you know what? Let there not be a high priest. Let there not be a high priest. This could be seen as the persecution of Judaism, because after all, we need to have a high priest to function. But yet, no one really seems to view it that way. The, the, the avoda continued, for the most part. There was no ban on the study of Torah. There was no ban on the observance of mitzvot. Life is basically good, okay, and the, the chashmonaim are marginal figures at this time. Marginal figures. Who is the leading chashmonai? In, in this period, Yonatan. Yonatan will uh, harass the, um, the collaborators on the east bank of the Jordan, uh, in, in the Judean hills, in, in the countryside. He'll make his presence felt every now and then with guerrilla raids. Did the people really like him? I don't know. The people loved Judah. He was a legitimate hero. Is Jonathan a hero by the 150s? Maybe not. Maybe he's just a nuisance. But next week we'll see that uh, the political turmoil in the Seleucid dynasty with the different uh, competitors to the throne will result in every one of those competitors to the throne needing allies. And you need a Jewish ally. And a Jewish ally who can do what for you? To muster soldiers. I don't need a Jewish ally who knows how to daven and read Torah. I need a Jewish ally if I'm, a, if I'm a, a Syrian pretender to the throne who can give me a couple of thousand soldiers at a moment's notice. And who can do that? Jonathan. So Jonathan will uh, utilize his military strength, which is you know, only residual and marginal at this time, but it's enough to make a difference for him to usurp the high priesthood. And the Maccabees will come back in, re- in a religious capacity on account of their prior military strength. Okay, we'll stop here.